So what we're going to do today is it's going to be fun. Britt's going to help me. Uh, this is like part two of last week. And so I'm going to give you a little summary of last week. And then we're going to dive into a new passage. And then I want to hear from you. We're going to dialogue a little bit. So you need to put your thinking caps on. You need to be listening because we have this whiteboard up. And on that whiteboard is going to be your ideas. So last week I talked about the Good Samaritan. And one of my friends told me that the Good Samaritan is probably the most problematic title for the passage. Because goodness is what kept the priest, the Levite, from doing good. And so he recommends that you call the passage the Compassionate Samaritan. And so I don't know if you remember, but this jerk came up to Jesus. Remember this lawyer? Jerko? What's jerk in Spanish? Okay, I need to learn that one. Okay, so this jerk came up to Jesus and was like, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And he was trying to test Jesus. He was trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus said, I don't need to answer it. You answer it. You know. And so... Jesus said, what did the law say? What does it say? And the guy said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus said, you answered correctly. Good job. You and go do likewise. And the guy was a little uncomfortable with it because he didn't like, he thought he got the first half of the commandment, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second half, love your neighbor. And so the guy asked the follow-up question, who's my neighbor? In other words, what I talked about last week, he was trying to categorize people. He wanted to love people that were like him, people that were easy to love. And so then Jesus told this parable. He said that there was this guy going down from Jerusalem on this windy trail and robbers came and they kicked his rear. They beat him up. They stripped him down and they left him half dead. So he was pretty much in critical condition on life support. And this priest came by. And you would think that a priest would stop. A priest is supposed to mediate the presence of God to people. You think he would show some mercy? But he sees a person and he walks around him. A Levite comes. A Levite looks, ignores, and walks around. But then you have this compassionate Samaritan. The Samaritan sees, has compassion, engages, binds up his wounds, picks the man up, puts him on his donkey, takes him with him, puts him in an inn, a hotel, then gives a ton of his money to kind of restore the guy, rehabilitate the guy back to good health. Now I said, what, what did that compassionate Samaritan have that the priest and the Levite did not? Or what did the priest and the Levite have that the compassionate Samaritan did not? And what I said was self-righteousness. The priest, self-righteous. The Levite was self-righteous. Oh. 
So what I said last week, the main enemy, the main killer of compassion is self-righteousness. Now, over the last few weeks, this has blown my mind. I feel like God has revealed to me the major issue that's been in my heart that I thought I had dealt with because I always thought of self-righteousness as a vertical issue. In other words, I know that my Christianity is not checkbox. I know that it's not about do's and don'ts. I knew that I couldn't have a facade of godliness, so I knew it was this relationship. And so I feel like over the last few years, I tried to rid my life of self-righteousness. I tried to take down the facade of godliness, of the legalism, of the religion. But I didn't realize the massive horizontal implications for my self-righteousness. Because some of the things that I've done is I, as I feel righteous, I declare other people unrighteous, unworthy, undeserving. I think of myself as unique, different, special. And I categorize people. I classify them, I label them. You see, what self-righteousness does is you make yourself, you think you're unique, special, privileged, blessed, and you start looking at other people, and you don't see them as people anymore. You see them as issues. You see them as problems. So, like I said last week, compassion is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Remember what I did with the shoes? It's like you got someone's shoes and for a moment you just, you climb in them, right? And you think, what is it like to wear their shoes? So it's like looking deep into their eyes and not thinking, I just can't wait till they stop talking. Can't wait until I can somehow figure out how to end this conversation. Instead, you like look deep into their eyes and you're like, what would it li be like to be raised like this? or to experience this trial or to experience this tragedy like what would that be like that's compassion but what self-righteousness does self-righteousness says my shoes are different my shoes are better I won't enter into those icky disgusting shoes of yours they're not even my style you're not like me I don't want to have anything to do with you And so I realized for a long time in my heart, I was practicing something like conditional compassion. You had to meet some prerequisites for me to show you some mercy. And for everybody, I would give them five bucks or I would give them five minutes. But after that, you had to meet some prereqs for me to invest an hour or a day. But I wasn't compelled to compassion. So again, this week has been a little bit tough for me because I was looking for a passage on self-righteousness and I found one and it was hard to read, as you'll see. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 58. You know some passages you, you read and you're like, I don't like this because I don't agree with it. I don't think it's... I, you know, we got all of our opinions we bring to the text. This one, I just wish that 
I could skip past or ignore. It's like a slap in the face. Like you feel the hand of God coming out and hitting you in the face. And that's this passage. So, there's nothing enjoyable about meditating on this passage. You'll see. Okay? Okay, check out verse 1. It says this, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Okay, that first, those first two words, cry aloud, it means say it so loud your throat hurts. Have you ever been to like a Dodger game? I mean, they lose a lot, so maybe a Giants game or a Lakers game, and you're yelling so loud your throat hurts afterwards, you lose your voice. Okay, so God is telling the prophet Isaiah, give my people's attention, yell at them, shout, be like a trumpet player. Any of you guys ever play the trumpet? I play the trumpet. If you played the clarinet, no one noticed you. You played the flute, no one noticed you. If you played the saxophone, you got the girls. If you played the trumpet, everybody noticed when you came in as long as you nailed your part. Well, he says, I want you to declare like a trumpet. I want you to announce my people's sin. So, I'm reading this. You meditate on verse 1 and you're like, Oh crud, what in the world did Israel do? What is their sin? I mean, is it like this sexual orgy? Is, this, is it this uh, overt idolatry? Like, what is this sin? Is it like child abuse? What in the world did they do for such a loud rebuke? Well, verse 2 tells us. Look at this. Yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of the Lord. They ask me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to me. So this is weird. He says, I'm going to announce your transgression and this is what you're doing. You're seeking me daily. This is weird. They're worshiping daily. They're going to the temple. They're devoted to scripture reading. I mean, they appear to be doing the right stuff. Let me get into your grill a little bit, because this is where it rubs me wrong. They read their Bible daily. They get up a half an hour early. Maybe an hour. Some of you are ultra spiritual. You pray regularly. You don't have enough money to eat, so you turn it into a fast and you call it a spiritual thing. So you fast frequently. You haven't missed a quiet time since 1996. You have this enduring spirituality. Not only that, so you seek me daily. You delight to know my ways. They even find pleasure in knowing, think about that, knowing the ways of God. So there are these theologians, they love talking about doctrine and theology. They read theologians. They read theology books. They read the theological blogs, love the discussion that's going on in the, that invisible world out there. They listen to podcasts. 
It's, it's like they're actually following God. But God gets a little bit cynical. He's like, it's as if they're a righteous nation. It's as if they didn't forsake my judgment. It's like, they're playing this really well. Every day, they're seeking me. They love to talk about my ways. It's almost as if they were a righteous nation that didn't daily forsake my judgment. And then it says, they delight to draw near to me. They love that private prayer time. Right? They love those spiritual, the spiritual discipline of solitude and reflection. I mean, imagine being a part of a church like this with people. For the longest time, my goal as a pastor was to get people in their Bibles daily, get them spending some good quality, uninterrupted time with the Lord, get them in good, spiritually edifying conversation. I mean, imagine being a part of a church like this. I mean, you would consider this a healthy church. Everybody would want to be a part of your church. They would say it's solid. It's grounded. It's mature. But look at what God does. God is just peeling back and showing the disgusting toxic, toxicity. Toxicity. There we go. Toxico. I can say that. Of their sin. Of their false spirituality. And look at their response. Verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Okay, you're starting to see in verse 3, you're starting to see the reason for their spirituality. They're seeking God, not for God, but for themselves. They're like, I think we figured out the secret to this life. If we seek God, then we're going to have all these massive blessings. And God's going to have to bless us. He's going to have to be for us. They're like putting pressure on God. They're blaming God. They're looking at God. And they're saying, you owe us. Look at us fasting. Look at us seeking you. Every day. And then God just rebukes them. Here's, Here's another point in Scripture where God just reaches out and slaps. He says, Behold, in the day of your fast, what do you do? You seek your own pleasure. You oppress your workers. And let me read verse 4 and 5. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? It is to bow down his head like a reed and to spread out sackcloths and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a, a day acceptable to the Lord? So what you see here is that these people are massively self-absorbed. Fasting is what? An emptying of yourself. You're pouring yourself out so that you can more tightly grip the things of God. 
And all they're doing is they're appearing to fast. They're putting on the garb of it. They're putting on sackcloth. They're putting on ashes. Dust on their face. And they're like, God, look at us. We are acting so well. You should be persuaded. You should be convinced to bless us. And God is disgusted with this. So do you realize, think about this, your practice of God, the way in which you seek God, may not be pleasing to God. We know this. But do you notice that there's some times in your life where you kind of like are doing everything right, but you still are not like loving people? It's like you're like, I just want to go away from them and read my Bible. And there's, there's something okay with that, you know, to get filled up, but you're like, you would so much rather read a theological book than live out that theology. You'd so much rather pray for people than spend time with people. It's like you love doing your devotions, but you don't have any deeds. And this is something I've talked to some of the people in my neighborhood about that were part of the church and left the church. Is that they're like, I see them on Sundays and they look ultra spiritual, but then I see them on Mondays. Does your piety, your godliness, or your worship on Sunday produce a passion for justice on Monday? Do you see it translating? Because for these people, it wasn't. Because I would say that true godliness should result in an explosion of social activity, an explosion of justice and practical mercy. The way one guy put it is, a concern for social justice is the true symptom of having a relationship with God. So, look at verse 6. Verse 6. Perfect. I'm going to skip around in this passage so that you see the type of fast that God is calling the people to. It says in verse 6, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. To break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house? When you seek the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Now jump down to the latter half of verse 9. If you take away the, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness, and this gets intense. Verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. This is crazy. This is the type of fast. For you to forsake food is easy. It's annoying. 2 or 3 p.m. You start getting grumpy and grouchy. You don't want to be around people. But honestly, it's easy because there's an end in sight. You know, you, you come to the end of yourself when you fast. You realize a lot of your weaknesses. 
But if you really want to pour yourself out, like really empty yourself, try engaging in this. This would be a true fast. This type of fast would be harder than a 40-day fast. Guaranteed. 40 days without food. My mother-in-law's done it twice. It's hard. But try 40 days of this. Where you are putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Not to lift the yoke. It's like, let me come alongside of you, brother, and help. No, to break the yoke. It's talking about entering into the social systems and breaking them and destroying them. Look at verse 10. Pouring yourself out? That sucks. That's not having some cute little um, McDonald's coupons to pass out to people or to take somebody and get them a $10 meal. Pour yourself out for the hungry. Talk about a fast that's painful. Satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Not just kind of like encourage them, but thinking, okay, I'm putting myself in their shoes. What would they want? What are their desires? Not what are their needs. This is one step up. What are their desires? This is so depressing for me. Because you know what it does? You know what symbolic gestures are? Symbolic gestures are where you give five bucks, you give five minutes, and guess what? You feel better about yourself. Your hands didn't get that dirty. It wasn't that time-consuming, that involved, that costly. Those are symbolic gestures of spirituality. But what God is calling us to is, I want you to so get in their shoes that you feel the yoke of this system, this oppression, this injustice. I want you to feel it. And I want you to bring redemption. I want you to bring social change. So this is what I want to do. I want to bring Brit up. And I want to hear from you guys. This is what we're going to do for like 5-10 minutes. I want you to put some flesh, so to speak, to verse 6, 7, 9, and 10. Because I could say, break the bonds of wickedness. That's like 30,000 feet. That's big picture. The yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Verse 6. But as you think of Lanark Park, as you think of the apartments surrounding the community of people around Lanark Park, as you think of Canoga Park, what are some of these yokes? Who are some of these oppressed? Who are some of the afflicted? So, speak to me. As you think of Living Stones Church, and as you think of the community that you're in, how are you to enter in to be a people that practice a fast like this? A people of social change. So as you listen to the stories of people, 
What's depressing them? What, what types of fears do they have? Uncertainties do they experience? What type of, to put spiritual language on it, what type of bondages do they find themselves in? Is that more clear? Yes. Can't get jobs. Addictions? Okay. Specifically? Like what? Drugs? What's that? Okay. What else? Education. What about education? Schools in this area are crowded. So education is poor. The kids don't get the attention they need. Anything else? Yes. Immigration. Okay. Specifically, what with immigration? Okay. Some of the injustices with the immigration and the, the lack of privileges. Anything else? A couple more. Broken families. When you say broken, fatherless. Okay. The housing system specifically? La vivienda. All right. Good. So it sounds like you guys know this neighborhood. So in other words, you could, you could read verse 6 like this now. Is this not the fast that I choose to break the bonds of addictions and drugs? To reform the educational system to give attention to the afflicted, the undocumented, the immigrant, to love the fatherless, to provide opportunities for the jobless. In other words, this, you devote yourself to this, this will be more taxing, more grueling, more time-consuming, more emptying of yourself than any cute 48-hour fast. I'm not saying you shouldn't fast. We are to fast. But do you see? If, fa- if the purpose of fasting is emptying yourself of food for a time in order to pick up the heart of God, don't you think that this would also likewise do that? You have to literally lay down your desires and pick up other people's desires. I mean, talk about gaining the heart of God. Try it this week. I'm going to fast from my own privileges, from my own advantages. And instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to adopt, I'm going to consume the desires of the underprivileged of those that are easily taken advantage of, those that have experienced massive injustices. So this is the type of fast that's being talked about here in this passage. And so, what I've done in the past 
is I haven't like engaged in this. Instead, I've just kind of provided like some stopgap solutions. It's like this. Let me put it in medical terms. You tell me if this is right, Britt. You see somebody that comes in to the emergency room and they're bleeding out, okay? They're like, ble- they have a gash, they have a wound. They're bleeding out and they're like, help me. Or say you look at their ankle and it's shattered, it's smashed. And you're reading their vitals and they're dying and you're listening to the bondage, the, the, you're listening to how broken they are. And you're like, I'm going to pull out a band-aid. I'm a trained medical profession, professional. I'm going to pull out a band-aid. And let's just, let's just stick this on here. Let's just stick this on. You good? You good? I did my part. I did my symbolic. I feel better about myself. You feel better? Okay, good. Scurry on out of here. I can't see any more blood. It's too much for me. It's too costly. But we feel better because we've done something. Let me rip this off now. And the way I heard one guy do it is this. One guy explained it like this. Is that picture every community like fabric. But because of sin, we'll see if my P90X has been working. I actually pre-ripped this. Sin rips apart communities. Okay? Maybe it's pornography, as our friends next door are involved in. Maybe it's Maybe it's drugs, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's broken families. And so we enter into communities with brokenness where people are just literally torn apart. And what we are to do as the church is we are thread or yarn. I didn't know how to do this illustration. Yarn isn't meant to mend cloth, but go with me. And what we're supposed to do as the church is we're to thread ourselves through, we're to use all of ourselves, thread ourselves through, invest ourselves in uh, fully, uh, trying to think of the word, fully delve into the neighborhood and bring healing, bring restoration, bring mending to the neighborhood that we're in. That's what we're called to do. But so often we're, we like stand back and we're like, dude, you're pretty screwed up. You, it sucks to be you. Your life is just all torn, ab- torn up. And we don't want to get too involved because guess what happens? When we get involved, when we start threading ourselves through the fabric of the community, guess what? We become part of the community, right? And there's no going back. We're investing the entirety of ourselves, our desires, our life, our money, our ambitions. And this more or less is what God has called us to. Is this not what Jesus did? We know that God has a heart for the poor. God has a heart for the homeless, for the afflicted. And what did Jesus do? He became poor. He didn't just go and reach the poor. He became poor. He was born in a feed trough. He, he was homeless, right? So think about that. People without homes are more similar. They identify more with Jesus. Right? Jesus had no place to lay his head. Think of those that are oppressed. Jesus became oppressed. He became the victim of injustice. 
God was not immune to the injustice of the world. He felt it. I mean, let's put some historical terminology on this. Jesus Christ was lynched. He was mobbed. He was strung up. And then he was assassinated. The greatest injustice, namely the crucifixion of Jesus, brought about the greatest justice. Because what did he do? He plunged himself into the community and he threaded his glory, he threaded himself into the lives of the people he was trying to reach. And so... God's looking at these self-righteous Israelites. God's looking at those of us in here like me that are very self-righteous. I think I have it together. I know my theology. I've read some theology books. I've taught theology. I know the discussions. I know the rights and wrongs. I could teach a class on a lot of the Bible passages in the Bible. But is God crying out to you as loud as a stinking trumpet blast and saying, you've missed it. Has not your godliness produced a social concern, a practical mercy? Are you not passionate for compassion? Because often what we do is we privatize our faith and we treat it as this personal lifestyle choice of saying no to certain things and saying yes to other things. And we disconnect, we snip off any social responsibility that might be in front of us. The way one guy put it is this, Jonathan Edwards. He says, Christian love disposes a person to be public-spirited. A man of right spirit is a man of not of narrow or private views, but he's greatly concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs particularly the city in which he resides. So as the passage finishes up here, I'll just close with this. These people, they were crying out to God. They're like, God, look at all these hoops we're jumping through. We're doing all the right things. We're praying. We're seeking you. But where are you? We're crying out to you and you're not hearing us. Well, God says, devote yourself to these things. Fast like this. Allow this to be your spirituality. And look what God will do. Verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. This is all kind of artsy, fartsy, poetic. I don't get this. I'm an engineer, but just try to go here. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, like the sun coming up in the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. Check this out. Your righteousness shall go before you. Not this cute little vertical righteousness where you're more godly than the next, but your righteousness that people will see that person is doing the work of God. He's doing right. The glory of God will be your rear guard protecting you. Verse 9, you'll call on the Lord, He'll answer. You'll cry out to Him and He'll say, Here am I. Look at verse 11. The Lord will guide you continually, satisfy your desire in scorched places, make your bones strong. 
Any of you agricultural people, people here? You shall be like a water garden, like the springs of water, whose water does not fail. Jump down then to verse 14. Then you shall take delight in who? The Lord. Are you lacking joy in your life? I am. Joy is like the one thing I want. I pray for it every day. I want it so bad. And so often, I think joy is found in sticking my nose more in this book. But what I have realized is too often I stick my nose in the religiosity of this book versus the person who wrote this book. And the person who wrote this book tells me, this is where he lives. This is where I should live. This is where he pours out himself. This is where I should pour out myself. And if I finally do that, then I'll experience, then we'll experience what all of us are longing for. That true delight and joy in the Lord. So the more I pour myself out for others, the more I weave myself into the community in which I live, the more I'm going to experience God. Do you believe this in closing? Do you believe that you can meet God and have a great quiet time with God on the streets just as much as in your closet? Do you realize that, do you believe that you can have just as good of a spiritual experience in this room worshiping with Ernesto leading you as you can at Lanark Park serving people? Do you believe that? Because us spiritual people here, you know, like I'm, I'm bagging on a lot of my friends, not you guys, me. Us spiritual people were like, I want a place that has this cool worship. Yours is amazing. Cool worship, the great lights. I want a place that teaches the doctrines of God and all this junk, honestly. And they're like, that's how I'm going to grow spiritually. But could it be that you will meet God in that worship center, in that sanctuary, versus what the churches typically encourage the mature to do. You guys are all familiar with this passage and I'll close with this statement. Jesus will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Check this out. Where was Jesus? Was He in the temple? Was Jesus... Was Jesus in the prayer closet? Not saying those things are bad. Don't, don't go there with me. Don't rebuke me afterwards for that. Where was he? I was hungry. He personifies himself. He says, I was hungry. You gave me no food. I was standing there hungry. You had an opportunity to have an encounter with me. You walked by. You walked around. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, literally, I was an immigrant. And you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you realize this book, as you're in it, as you spend that, those devotion times, if it doesn't push you there, you've got to change what you're doing. You have to. If your time with the Lord, no matter how cute or great you think it is, could it be just like this spirit, the most spiritually selfish thing you're engaged in? Or 
What if you're reading, you're spending that five, ten minutes with the Lord, and you put it aside and you're like, I gotta go love. I gotta go take on the burdens of those around me. I gotta go feed the hungry. If that's the results, the produce, if that's what causes is that if that's what happens after you spend time with Jesus, then you're really spending time with Jesus. So we're gonna do a song, right? Okay. Ernie, you can come on up. Ernie, you know about this song, right? Could you explain it a little bit? Okay. So let me pray for us. And I'd encourage you to listen to the words of this song. Father, we, we want to meet you. We want to enjoy you just for you. We want to meet you in the lives of others. Lord, bless our time when we're in the Word, when we're praying in our prayer closet. We pray that you'd meet us there and stir us, compel us to go out and to love other people. Lord, I pray against my own tendency just to do symbolic gestures or just to do the quickest act of service or the least costly act of service or the the least time-consuming, demanding act of service. Help me, help us instead to just pour ourselves out, empty ourselves, surrender our lives to the lives of other people. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.